Thank you. I don't know what to say other than let's go to the Word of God because that's why we're here, isn't it? May you be lifted up. I love that song that was played as the slides were showing. That's really what it's all about. It always is, isn't it? We're going to be in Acts chapter 3 today. And my goal is to continue on in this great story. Acts 3 is very similar to Acts chapter 2. There's an event that happens that gets people's attention right off the bat. And then Peter gets to follow it up with an explanation, a sermon. So we're going to have an event in the first part of chapter 3 that's going to grab people's attention. They're going to be blown away by what happens. And then Peter gets to follow it up with an explanation, a sermon, his second sermon in the book of Acts. So you'll see the similarities there. This is the first miracle, first of 14 miracles that are going to be given us in the book of Acts. So I think the question that we need to start off with, why miracles? Why were miracles done by Jesus and now by his, his apostles, the ones that he gave his power to? Why, why miracles? What's the point? Well, I think it's important to state, first of all, that miracles were not meant to show off. Jesus, his apostles, didn't do miracles simply to show off and to say how great they were necessarily or just for the sake of, hey, let's gather some attention here. Let me give you an example of a miracle that is attributed to Jesus, although it, didn't, it never happened, and let me explain. There's a lot of books out there that were written around this, the time of Christ and even after that claim to be authoritative, that claim to tell us stories about Jesus, but were absolutely false and written by people that had no connection to Jesus whatsoever. Here's a story from a book. It's called The Arabic Gospel of the Infancy of the Savior. It was written about 400 AD. So here's a story of the supposed infancy of Jesus when he was a child, okay? It says, And when the Lord Jesus was seven years of age, he was on a certain day with other boys, his companions, about the same age, who at play made clay into several shapes, namely oxen, birds, donkeys, and other figures, each boasting of his work, endeavoring to exceed the rest. Typical, right? Show up the next guy. Then the Lord Jesus said to the boys, I will command these figures which I have made to walk. Immediately they moved, and when he commanded them to return, they returned. He had also made figures of birds and sparrows, which when he commanded, they flew. And when he commanded to stand still, they did stand still. And if he gave them meat and drink, they did eat and drink. When at length the boys went away and related these things to their parents, their father said to them, Take heed, children, for the future of his company, for he is a sorcerer. Shun and avoid him, and from now on never play with him again. Did Jesus do that miracle? No. But these are some of the stories that kind of got put out there um, by some of these false books that were around. Jesus didn't do that sort of thing. There was a purpose for his miracles. What was the purpose for Jesus' miracles? First of all, miracles attested to the fact that Jesus was doing these by the authority of God. We saw that last week. God is attesting, accrediting Jesus the power 
it's God is saying this is a work of God that Jesus is doing, and there's proof of this. When the disciples come along now in the book of Acts and do miracles, it's basically saying just like Jesus, they're continuing on doing his ministry on earth. They're doing miracles. They were given credit by God. But beyond that, they show who Jesus is and what he came to do. And the disciples now have that power to do them. Jesus, when he was alive, showed that he had power over things like illness. He healed all kinds of diseases, didn't he? He had power over death. He raised people back to life from the dead. He had power over nature. He just spoke to the storm and it was calm. He cursed a fig tree and the figs died. He had power over nature. But one of the things, and we're going to see that today, he has power over sin. Oftentimes when Jesus did a miracle, he spoke of people's sin. And he did miracles to show that he had power over that in people's lives. Who he was and what he came to do. He came to free people from their sins. He came to set up his kingdom. And his miracles to be continued on in the life of the, of the apostles were about that. That's why miracles happen in Scripture, not just to show off. So let's read about a miracle, the first 10 verses of chapter 3. Here's the event that leads to the second sermon. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer, 3 in the afternoon. Now, a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet, and he began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. Wow, what a beautiful account. What a beautiful story. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. This is a miracle. Last chapter, verse 43, it says, Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. This is the first example of that that we have. This is one recorded for us. People are filled with awe and wonder here. Now, it mentions that Peter and John were going up to the temple. A couple of things about that. One, the word up means in elevation. To get to the temple, wherever you were in Jerusalem, you had to go up geographically because it was on a hill, on a mount. And so they would go up to the temple. But beyond that, it's keep this in mind, and I mentioned this last week, that these were Christian people, but they were Jewish people. So their everyday practices still lined up with what they did when they were, and they still are, Jewish people. 
going to the temple was part of their common regular practices. Now it says they went there at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. I mentioned this last week that there were three times of day that the Jewish people would go to the temple to pray. There was morning, there was noon, and there was afternoon prayer times that were established, and they would go there in that time. This is the one in the afternoon. It's interesting, they were not going to the temple to sacrifice. They were going to pray. Do you catch that? The sacrifice would have already occurred. The prayer time would have come after the sacrifice. The Lamb of God had already been sacrificed for them, and they knew that. They didn't need to go to the sacrifice necessarily of that, but they needed the prayer time. They wanted to be a part of that. It says there was a man there in verse 2. He was lame from birth. To me, when I heard that, it, it, it's us. It's our story. In a sense, we weren't physically lame at birth maybe, but we were definitely spiritually lame from birth. David says, I was born in sin. It was in sin my mother conceived me in Psalm 51. Lame from birth. We were born this way in our sinful nature. We know that from Scripture. But I think even more from that, we see him sitting outside the gates of the temple, unable to participate in the worship of God. He can just sit there and beg for money from people as they went to worship God. It's a picture of us cut off from the worship of God before we came to know him. And then finally, it's just this hopelessness. He's in a hopeless situation. There's nothing he can do on his own to change any of this. He has to rely 100% on everybody else. That's you and me. In our condition, without Christ, there's nothing we can do on our own. We need him. That's the story of the gospel. God has to do a work in our lives to change us. We can't do that. It speaks of this place. Where was he? He was at the beautiful gate, the gate beautiful. It was a strategic location because it was located at the entrance into the Jewish court. So between the Gentile court and the Jewish court of the temple of that day, people would be going there to worship and knowing that almsgiving was part of the ritual of worship for all of these people, he was in a good place knowing that these people were loved to give and that was part of their worship of God was giving. And so there he was, sitting there, looking, hoping. Beautiful gate. It's called that for a reason. Josephus, the great historian of Jesus' time, describes the gate as made of Corinthian brass, 75 feet tall, had two doors, greatly excelling the other gates that were only covered with gold and silver. Really? significantly beautiful it just shone it was called referred to as the beautiful gate look at us peter said in verse four look at us he did that for a couple reasons i really believe one obviously and it mentions that to get his attention don't look at them as they pass by i want you to look at us because there's something important going to happen here but i think there's a deeper reason why he had him look at it them because he cared he wanted to show the value of that person. Eye contact says that, doesn't it? It was neat that a lot of the pictures had Father's Heart Street Ministry up there, and a lot of you do that. Um, 
in those opportunities when you go out and you serve food to a person and you're across the table from this homeless individual, this poor person, you can make eye contact and you can say to them and talk to them and pray with them, give them something they need. It shows them that they have value. And I love that part of the Father's Heart ministry. It shows these people that, hey, we're not just driving by you, we care. The eye contact says that. Now, with that eye contact comes expectations. The payday, right? That was what he was expecting, but that wasn't what he was going to get that day. The other, last Sunday, John Rowley in the Adult Education Hour said this, and it stuck in my head. John, thank you, by the way, and here's what John said. We ask God for what we want in our prayers, but he often gives us what we need. Do you see the difference? What he wanted <laughs> was some good cash because he had a need there. That's what he wanted. He was begging for that. But what he really needed was what Peter and John were about to give him. And that is a couple of things. One is the greater mercy of healing and forgiveness of sins and relationship with God. That's what they wanted to give him. That's what he really needed. But when Peter says to him, first statement, silver or gold I do not have, you could probably see his, the frown or the disappointment come across his face. His expectations had just been crushed. But what I do have, I'm going to give to you, Peter says. There's something bigger, deeper, more important here. Now that phrase, silver or gold, I do not have, I came across this story with Thomas Aquinas. So here it is. It says, the great theologian Thomas Aquinas visited Rome and had an audience with Pope Innocent II. That's a great name. I like that name. Aquinas was somewhat amazed by the opulence of the Vatican in that day. This was prior to the building of St. Peter's Cathedral, which came later and was huge. But even then, it was a glorious headquarters for the church, filled with riches. And the Pope was somewhat proud of the riches of the church. And he said to Aquinas, no longer do we say, in quotes, silver and gold have we none. Quoting Acts chapter 3. Thomas Aquinas looked at the Pope and said, maybe that is why we can no longer say, rise up and walk. <laughs> Boom. I thought that was pretty good. Getting off track a little bit there. But this idea, silver or gold, I don't have this, but I'm going to give you something bigger. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Not in my name, not in John's name, not because we're all that as apostles. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. The healing was Jesus's, but Peter reaches down with his right hand and helps him up. The healing was Jesus, the right hand of help was Peter. Isn't that beautiful? I just love how the two are playing together there in a beautiful picture. And it says his feet and his ankles became strong. That word there, became strong, it's a divine passive, simply meaning God did this. God did it. At that moment in time, because of Peter's faith and the power vested in him by his Lord 
Jesus Christ of Nazareth, that man was healed fully. And it says he got up. Now, he didn't just walk. Isn't that a beautiful story? It wasn't just a, oh, my goodness, you know. He had never walked before. He was lame from birth. This was a first-time experience for him. Imagine what that would have been like. But he said, I'm not happy just to walk. I'm going to get up these stairs with a little leaping and a praising of God because of the miracle that's just happened in my life. It was like that. There's really four aspects of this miracle that are important to consider. Number one, it was unexpected. It was not what he was there for that day. He had no idea that something this amazing could ever happen. It was way beyond his expectations. Secondly, it was done in the name of Jesus Christ. It was his character, his authority, his power that was doing this miracle, not Peter and John's. It was instantaneous. He wasn't healed over a process of time or by doing certain things. It was just at the moment he was healed, and it was complete. The symptoms were completely gone. His body and his spirit were completely healed. So the moment he got up, he could actually jump. There was no atrophy there. That would have obviously been an issue, having someone lame from birth. Now, there's a great opportunity. Something great has happened. People are gathering. So here, Peter sees this great opportunity, and look what happens in verse 11 through the end of the chapter. Peter again stepping up and preaching. While the man held on to Peter and John, isn't that a beautiful picture? Love you guys. Thank you. All the people were astonished, and they came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, yes, he said to them, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Kind of a strange question, isn't it? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant, Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go, by the way. <laughs> Pilate, you disowned the Holy and Righteous One and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him as you can all see. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets saying that his Messiah would suffer. Remember that? It was there. Here's what you need to do. Repent. Turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone 
who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. Wow. Indeed, beginning with Samuel, all the prophets who have spoken have foretold these days. And you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. Remember that promise? When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. Whoa, there is a lot said there. But what Peter's doing here is he's taking the miracle and everybody's attention on the miracle, and he wants to turn it in different directions. He wants to turn it and say, look up, look up, see Jesus. Then look inward. There's some issues that you need to deal with. Then look forward. Look forward to what's ahead. So let's take a look at those three, the looking upward. You know, for Peter, he's at Solomon's colonnade. The people are actually running to him. They're astonished. They're amazed. What an incredible opportunity. And Peter sees it, and he, all he sees is this is an opportunity to spread the gospel. This is an opportunity for evangelistic sermon, and so he lays it out. Why does this surprise you in verse 12? Why do you stare at us? Here's the thing. Don't look at Peter and John. Don't look at this man who's been healed, although it's pretty cool. I want you to look up. I want to talk about Jesus. I want you to see him. I want your attention to go there, not here. And don't you love, here's this man that's been healed. He's clinging on to Peter and John. Just a beautiful picture. Of how He's just showing his, his gratitude and his love for them. And at this point, he has no clue what's going on here, but he's going to hear from Peter. It's interesting that Peter doesn't have the man share his testimony. That would have been a powerful testimony. What a great experience. What a great story. But Peter goes to the Word of God. Peter goes to Jesus right off the bat. It's not about us. It's not about that story. Focus on Him. That's what he's saying. Saving faith doesn't come by seeing or hearing miracles, although they're pretty cool. Saving faith comes by hearing the Word of God, Romans 10, 17. So then... Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's how faith comes into our life. And in verses 13, 14, and 15, Peter's going to turn their attention to Jesus Christ, and he's going to give him three names because this miracle was done in the name of Jesus Christ. So he's going to focus on some names of Jesus here. And I love how he starts out here in verse 13. And he says, this God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the God of our fathers, he's our, he's our God. You know this story. You're Jewish people. You're here at the temple worshiping that God. But I want to clue you in on something, and that is his son, Jesus Christ, that you need to know about. So he starts with three names. The first name that he gives for Jesus is not son, although that's true. It's God's servant, Jesus. God's servant, Jesus. And in a Jewish mind, 
when they heard that in their day, their first thought would have gone back into the Old Testament, which was their scripture, obviously, into the book of Isaiah, chapter 52 and 53, that speaks of a suffering servant that's going to come. There's a promised Messiah that's going to appear one day, and this Messiah is going to be one that suffers, and he's going to be a servant. Look at what it says in Isaiah 52, verse 13, and then Isaiah 53, 11. It says, see, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised up and lifted up and highly exalted. He's going to come as a servant, but guess what? He's going to be raised up and highly exalted by God. That's the story of Jesus. He's ascended to the throne. But look what Isaiah 53, 11 says. It says, after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. There's a reason why he's a servant. There's a reason why he's suffering, and here it is, to bear their iniquities, to take their sin upon himself. Jesus is that suffering servant that Isaiah spoke of. He is the Messiah. He is the promised one. He's here. Then he speaks in verse 14 of a holy and righteous one. That was a name used of God 40 times in the Old Testament. He's referred to as the Holy One. That's speaking of Yahweh, the great I Am. He will be spurned and rejected by Israel, but later they will turn to him. Look what it says in the Old Testament in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 1.4, Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel. They've turned their backs on him. They've rejected him. That's what you're doing today. Peter says, you've turned your back on God's Holy One. He's here. He was here. He's ascended, but you turned your back on Him. He was God's Holy One. Then in Isaiah 10, 20, in that day, the remnant of Israel, the survivors of Jacob, will no longer rely on Him who struck them down, but will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. There's that I, the holy and righteous one. This is Jesus. There's going to come a day where, yeah, he's been rejected, but there's going to come a day where a remnant, a smaller portion of you, are going to, by faith, rely on him as your Savior. And this is that day, Peter is saying. Verse 15, the third name that he gives is author of life. Jesus is the author of life. He is the source of life. It comes from Him. He is the sustainer of life. We rely on Him for our lives. But you killed Him. You put Him to death. Wow. You know, the higher the office of the one killed, the greater the significance. An example of this is when the day when JFK was killed by Lee Harvey Oswald. There was really two people killed that day. Obviously, our president, but there was a police officer who was also killed by Lee Harvey Oswald. That was important. We're not minimizing it, but in the picture, we don't remember that, do we? We remember JFK. 
being killed because of his office of president. And this is what Peter was saying. This is the author of life here that you kill. That's how important that is. So in this passage, in verse 13, 14, and 15, there's four charges brought against the Israelites, people and their leaders. You handed him over. You rejected him. You turned your back on him, basically disowned him. You asked for a criminal, a murderer in his place. You traded him for a criminal. And then number four, you put him to death. You killed him. There's four paradoxes in play between who he is and what you did. You rejected him, but God exalted him. He is that exalted servant. He was the deliverer, but you delivered him over. That's the paradox there. He was holy and righteous, God's holy and righteous one, but you rejected him in favor of a criminal, the worst kind of person, a murderer. He was the author of life. You put him to death. You see how Peter plays off these accusations against them and what they had done. Here in chapter 3, there's four or five times it's you. He's pointing the finger. In chapter 2, he just did it one time. You, the Jews, and the Romans in chapter 2. Here it's four times, four or five times. He's pointing his finger and saying, you, you, you. In verse 16, going back to this question, okay, so how was this man healed? So verse 16, here's the answer. It's by faith in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The name of Jesus is the source of the power. It's the source of the healing. It wouldn't have happened otherwise without Jesus' name, his power, his authority, his character. But faith is the way you access that power. That man who was sitting there, when Peter reached his hand down, he needed to respond. He needed to respond in faith, didn't he? The same thing is true for them. It's the name of Jesus that's the source of the power, but it's faith is the access. It's the way that you can accomplish that. I came across another Aquinas quote. This is just kind of random. I don't know that much about him, but I just found these interesting, and they both happen to be Thomas Aquinas. So when it comes to miracles and faith, here's what Thomas Aquinas said. He says, to one who has faith, no explanation is necessary for miracles. You believe in God. Why explain? You don't need an explanation. You understand to one who does not have faith, who doesn't believe, no explanation is even possible. You get that? If you don't have faith, if you don't believe, that's the key. That's what Peter says you need to do. You need to look upward to him, Jesus of Nazareth. He is the servant that came and took your sins. He is the holy and righteous one. He is the author of life. He is the one who has done this incredible miracle. He is the one you need to have faith in. So as you look up, I want you to look inward. Verses 17 to 19, here's what he asked them to do. He says, I know you were ignorant. I know at the time you didn't know what you were doing. 
Even Jesus on the cross said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. There's an ignorance there. But that's no excuse for a lack of faith. Ignorance does not cancel out God's plan either. You were ignorant. You did this. But guess what? God's plan still went on. It didn't cancel it out. It didn't change anything. In fact, it was all part of God's plan from the very beginning. Just as Peter had let the lame man know that he needed something more than silver and gold, he's letting the, this audience know, hey, you need something more. The real need, it's not about the physical stuff here. It's about the spiritual stuff. There's something better, deeper, and a more value that you need to grab onto. Healing is great. It solves our problem temporarily, and it's a good thing. It relieves our suffering. But salvation, belief in God and faith in God, solves our biggest problem, which is sin. And it solves that issue eternally. Jesus taught the same thing. Back in Luke chapter 5, there's that great story, I love it, of the man who was paralyzed and he had four friends. Do you remember that story? And they br put him on a mat and they brought him to Jesus, okay? And they get to the house, where, and, you know, they're lugging this guy to get him there. And then they get to the house and it's so full, people were on the outside waiting to get in. There was no way to get to Jesus. So what did they do? The most incredible, I love this story, they went up on the roof, Right? They started tearing the roof apart. I always wondered who put that back together. Who paid for that? I don't know. But they tore a roof apart to get this man where they could lower him down right in front of Jesus. Talk about faith. And I love what Jesus does. He says to the guy, he says, your sins are forgiven. Hmm? Okay, wait a minute. His friends say, okay, we brought him here to get him healed. And Jesus, instead of saying you're healed, he said your sins are forgiven. Didn't he kind of, did we miss something? I'm sure his friends were like, and Jesus points to the faith of his friends. That they had the faith to bring him to Jesus. But what Jesus was saying beyond that was he had the power to not only heal, which he did, but to forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. And yeah. That's exactly who Jesus is. Look upwards to Christ, but I want, you, I want you to look inward. Verse 19, and this is pretty much the same as chapter 2 with a small difference of what Peter said to the people there, the audience there. I want you to do two things, two commands here in verse 19. The first one, you need to repent. Repent simply means to change your mind and your direction. It means to turn away from your sin. Don't keep doing what you're doing. Change your thinking on the whole thing and then your direction. Do a 180. That's what repentance really means. Not just feeling bad about your sin and the guilt, but turning from your sins. I want you to turn from, but I want you to turn to God. That's part two, the second command. It's not just turning over a new leaf. You know, we use that term sometimes. Really, it's becoming a new creation in Christ. It's not just me, by faith, accepting Christ and becoming a better version of Ken. It's 
me trusting Christ and becoming a new creation in Christ Jesus. Everything's different. Everything's changed. Yeah, he works with me, and yeah, he, he transforms me, but saving faith is about new life, new creation. Turn to God. Turn to him. You can't do this on your own. And then there's two promised blessings or benefits. We saw this last week. Repent and be baptized last week. So it's similar. And you will receive the forgiveness of sin and the Holy Spirit in chapter 2. Well, this week, you'll have your sins wiped out. They will be totally erased. William Barclay, in his commentary, is one of the great scholars. He says, ancient writing was upon papyrus, and the ink used it had no acid in it in those days. Therefore, it did not bite into the papyrus as modern ink does. It simply lay on top of it. So you have this ink just kind of resting on the papyrus. To erase the writing, a man would just take a wet sponge and simply, gone, wipe it away. That's what God wants to do with your sins. Simply wipe it away, no record of it. Isn't that a beautiful illustration of what God wants to do? It's interesting to me, the same word, this wiped out idea is used in the book of Revelation, a God who wipes away our tears. They're gone. Isn't that amazing? He's wiped our sins away. Now we're with him, and guess what? There's no more tears. He's wiped them away. They're gone. That's a beautiful benefit, blessing that we can have. Your sins will be wiped out, and there will come a time of refreshing this is a reference to a lot of things probably involved in this, but one of those is the coming of the Holy Spirit. Just, it's kind of that positive counterpart to forgiveness. God takes away sin. He's taken something away from your life, which is sin, and he's going to give you something. Take it away, give it. That something he wants to give you is this refreshing that comes about through the Holy Spirit in your life, times of refreshing, but it carries more than that. This is a new era that we're in now. This is the kingdom of the Messiah that we're in now, and that's what he's talking about. This is an invitation to take part with us in the kingdom. That's what's going on here. But you need to repent, turn from your sin and your everything else, and turn to God. It's that simple. To enjoy this forgiveness of sin and this new life, this time of refreshing. You need to look inside your heart. Something needs to change. And finally, and I'm just going to read verse 20 and 21. I love this. You need to look forward. Here's what it says in that verse. It says, that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. There's going to be a day where Christ returns looking forward, where he's going to take everything and restore it. And what you just witness, the healing of this lame man, is only a small piece of what is going to be seen on that day. It's a restoration 
back to the way it was before sin entered this world, but it's also a looking forward to the day where everything's going to be made new and where healing is going to be a part of that picture. This whole idea of this healing lame man and his jumping and praising God was a symbol of this. And I want to read Isaiah. It's chapter 35, verses 1 through 6. Here's what it says. It says, The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it'll just burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. What day is this talking about? Strength, strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then, then, the second coming, isn't it? Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the mute tongue will shout for joy. Charles Wesley in his hymn, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, this is what the lyrics say. Hear him, ye deaf, his praise, ye dumb, your loosened tongues employ. Ye blind, behold your Savior come, and leap, ye lame, for joy. That's the day. That's looking forward to the day that's going to happen. It's more than just overriding the natural order in this miracle. God's ultimate plan is to restore everything. It's the restoration of the natural order. Tim Keller says this, We modern people think miracles are the suspension of the natural order, that God suspended the natural order to do something. But Jesus and the apostles, meant, it meant to them the restoration of the natural order, the way things were, the way things will be one day when Christ returns. That's the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. As we come to communion, I want you to consider looking upward. That's where it starts. Communion's about remembering him, what he did for us, celebrating our Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to look inward because it speaks to our sin, speaks to our problem and the forgiveness that is available through our Savior, Jesus Christ. And I want you to look forward, because when we partake, you do this until he returns, right? There's an expectation, there's a looking forward every time we do this. Keep doing it, keep doing it, because he's coming back. So look upward, look inward, look forward. Amen?